Good morning. This is Doc Scott. I was really trying to get on at 6.58 to prove a point to my friend Jamie. And um, by the way, um, I just want to tell my wife, look what Jesus left me, or the angels left me in here in the room. I found this when I got here. It's very good. It's revival in a cup. Mm. Very good. So, oh, but now that I know you're on, I got on at 7 o'clock exactly, um, Jamie. Just I was pushing for two minutes till, and if I didn't have to run to the restroom, I would have been here at 6.58, like, bam. So, and the angels left me revival in a cup. <laughs> what could be better, right? Um, <laughs> that's right, I have to keep harassing people when they wreck my world. So, you know, I was thinking about this thing on the way in. Sometimes I think it's dangerous, especially, let's just leave it at dangerous. Um, you know, Kusas and Posner wrote a book um, called The Leadership Challenge years ago. And um, in the beginning, and I remember reading that book for, you know, like one of my first, <laughs> first graduate graduate programs, you know, a perpetual life student thing. And one of the things they were saying in that, which is very true, they're talking about how um, technology had pretty much leveled a lot of the hierarchies that we have in our culture. That where in many places we've had hierarchical structures that, um, you know, where everything goes top down, you know, and it's very, you know, most people in those spots leading from positional authority and whatnot. And essentially, when with the advent of technology, it's taken in the business world, it's taken this like middleman, a lot of these guys in the hierarchy out, because what it did was it shifted from the people who were in the position having the power to the people that had the information. And so knowledge in this way became the new currency. And they talk about, you know, knowledge being the new currency. And essentially, it's what we do with that in terms of the people's ability. It's what our ability to do with the knowledge and the things that were available because of the information age that we're living in. It's what they do with it that gives them power. So in other words, the one that can gather and manipulate and repack and do whatever with what is out there on the information front has the greatest power because they're the manipulators in a good way of the information stream. So, and we know that today that we're bombarded, we're living in an information era that technology overload, but we're constantly bombarded. And so we've seen what they were talking about, I believe back in like 2005. And so they were seeing this kind of leveling um, coming. And so pondering on that one, because, you know, in that model, what they were talking about was knowledge being the new currency. Well, revelation is the new currency in the kingdom, okay? And essentially, there is a governmental shift that is happening. Um, just like what Kuzas and Posner saw when they saw the leveling of the playing field, so to speak. And it brought these guys that were previously nothing to the forefront because all of a sudden they were powerful because they were 
the purveyors of the knowledge and everything that was coming through in the information overload world that we live in. And so they were able to do things with it. And so essentially it also changed the marketplace. The marketplace changed from, you know, my parents' generation and before them, it was the 40-40-40, right? We work for 40 years, we get the uh, $40 gold watch at the end after working for 40 years, 40 hours a week, right? That was the 40-40. Well, essentially what Kuzis and Posner were saying was that's gone. And we've seen that shift in our culture that essentially in today's marketplace, people are as good as their skills in the last um, set of learning that they've engaged with, you know, whatever it is. And so people function today in the marketplace more like um, independent contractors. And so, and they talked about collaborative teams. You know, this is an era where teams got together, they would collaborate on a project, and then they would break up, and then essentially you'd be out for rehire. And your resume was as good as the last gig you did. And so I say that to say, you know, in a, it's a metaphor and what they were talking about, which was something that literally did happen that transformed the marketplace around the world. Information age has changed everything and it's given the little guys a lot more power and it's brought down the big guys. So now um, it's just a whole different playing field, right? Well, there's something happening right now in the kingdom that's the same way in the context of revival. There are governmental shifts that are coming right now that are going to take some of the people that are in the highest positions of power and they're going to lose that seat. And Jesus is going to raise up shepherds and leaders after his own heart and they will go into those seats. So there's a double-pronged thing here. Some are going to give, be given opportunity. I think people, leaders are in a spot now where, you know, we're no longer in the place where we can be the gatekeeper, okay? And I don't think that with the, the violence of heaven and the violence with which Jesus is ravaging the earth right now and bringing revival, anyone who stands as a gatekeeper stands to come down. The gatekeeper season is over. You know, we've had people, you know, a lot of our churches, you know, and I'm not judging anything. I don't need to. Um, have been very hierarchical where the man of God at the top has all the coins and has all the power and everything revolves around them. And so, and the structures that they build, right? Whenever you do positional power, man on top, everything is hierarchical underneath that person, okay? It's not servant leadership, which goes bottom up, okay? Servant leadership says, I'm gonna promote everybody, and I don't care if they surpass me or not. Servant leadership is for mature people, fathers, mothers in the faith, young people in the faith who know what it means to serve. Because in the kingdom, everything is inverse, okay? It's not the same way it is here. And we see this, you know, the concept of servant leadership, we see what it looks like. Go to a Marriott hotel and look at how it's run. They've embraced servant leadership. Those leaders and those workers are empowered. So it's a kingdom principle that's implemented in the world. They call it servant leadership when they bring it out here. And essentially, 
It's the design. It's what Jesus did when he took off the towel and washed his disciples' feet and, you know, dry them, put the towel back on, and went to the next one. He modeled the leadership that, that was kingdom leadership, right? One of the reasons that the Romans were so flipped out, I know I'm jumping, but I'll jump back and weave it all together. One of the reasons that the Romans were so flipped out is because... Um, they saw a king, and the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were all clamoring for this king. And what really flipped them out was the one that emerged, but it equally flipped out the believers. Because the believers were looking for the king Messiah who would raise up an army, literal army, and go against Roman and push back Roman oppression. And it's one of the reasons I like... Um, Killing Jesus, the movie, because it shows it from, and Risen, shows it from the Roman side. They were shaking in their boots, too. Because if this guy resurrects, we're in a boatload of trouble. And, um, but, the, but the Hebrews, the, the children of Israel, they wanted this warrior king. And what did he bring them? He said, okay, here's the warrior king. Ready? Love your enemies. That wasn't quite what they were looking for. Give to the one that takes from you. Bless those that persecute you. Lay down your life for your friend. Forgive them 70 times seven, you know, which translates to what, a million? Um, kidding, but you got my point. So my point in all that is, is kingdom dynamics are inverse. Those who seek to be the greatest will go the lowest. And the ones that go the lowest and empower those above them will be the greatest because they, they, we lead that way. We lead through empowerment and release and deployment, right? We release, empower, deploy. And when you have an organization that's been built, largely the American church, a church around the world, on hierarchical structures, I'm just saying those are being leveled right now. And I have a little passage here that I want to read about um, Second Kings, I'm going to read one verse of it, and then I'll just give you the story. So Elisha says, chapter 7, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Okay, so just prior to this, Elijah is sitting in his home, the elders are with them. The king sends a man ahead of him before the messenger comes. And he says, Yo, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, hold us fast at the door, etc., etc." Well, basically, Elijah knows every person that comes to the door. He doesn't get killed. He also tells the king, I can hear what's in your bedroom, dude. And I'm, I'm, I, I, what you say in your bedroom in private, I'm hearing it. So he was basically not popular with the king, how odd, prophets rarely are. And so essentially, um, what happens is after he makes that pronouncement about um, being the flower being sold for a shekel, he says, here, he says, so an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? 
it would make them. And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat it. Okay, huge famine. I love this passage because this guy that didn't like what the you know prophet was saying gets trampled to death later, but I hate when that happens. Um, no metaphor there, of course. Um, but at any rate, here's what happens. These, these lepers, a bunch of lepers, right? Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. So if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And so they arose at twilight to go into the camp. Okay, so these guys essentially made a decision. I don't have nothing to lose. Why don't we go ahead and go in there? And later in the story, it talks about how the Lord caused them, you know, the sound of, you know, um, there was a big sound that came of horses and chariots, etc., of a great army and the Amer Amer uh, Arameans all flee. The army flees leaving the whole city to be plundered. Jesus, in this example, the playing field got leveled. I always thought it was so interesting that the ones that got to be the carriers of the message, that the city is empty, the ones that walked in, who with, I mean, let's, you know, their abandon wasn't, profoundly courageous they were going to die either way but i do think it's interesting that they had abandoned themselves to the idea that you know what we're going to die anyway might as well go in here and see what happens right if they catch us maybe they'll feed us um nothing to lose that is the characteristic that um uh, right the more we have to lose the harder it is to risk that's right my wife she's so smart um it's true you know, when you have nothing to lose, you, you run with abandonment. If everything to lose, the risk becomes greater. But the very thing that Jesus says is pick up my cross and follow me. There's an inherent risk in that. And risk is usually the thing that we are protecting ourselves from, right? We don't want to take a risk. We want to play it safe. Everything in my culture tells me to play it safe. I got to save up for the rainy day. I've got to do this. I'm not saying saving money is bad. What I'm saying is... We are, we are basically inundated with the safety gospel, right? We, um, we want to be safe. We want God to do everything. We want him to bless us. We want zero risk and all the blessing. It's not really the way God works. Um, but I think it's interesting that these guys had nothing to risk, so they go in there. And they actually become the messengers and the heralds of the news that the camp is empty. And they become the ones that actually, that invite everyone to come and take the plunder. So that what Elisha said was true. The next day it was so. Couple things. There are suddenlies that are on the horizon that will make things flip from one thing to another. It's, it's how we see that thing that happens when Jesus talks about in the Old Testament about how a nation will basically flip in a day. How does that happen? It happens through a series of suddenlies. Um, if we took any world event or any particular thing going on in the world right now 
and we inserted a few suddenlies, the landscape of the entire country could change just like that. We can't underestimate what Jesus wants to flip on a dime. We cannot underestimate, we can no longer afford to look through natural eyes and see an army that is bigger than we are. We cannot afford it. We cannot afford, you know, I love my dad to death, okay? Love him to pieces. He's a Fox News diehard. I love it. I agree with his politics. I get it. But for my dad, for the man who doesn't have the hope and the call and the knowing of the one who holds the keys, when I look at that picture, when he looks at that picture, what he sees is the world going to hell in a handbasket. So when he says to me, son, you need to pray, what he means is you need to pray because it's so flipping dark out there and it's going to hell fast and I don't know if we'll ever pull out of it in my lifetime and you need to pray that you can survive. Okay, the days of just surviving are done, okay? Many of us have been surviving in whatever you want to call it, wilderness, prison. You put your name on it. I don't care what name you put on it. But those days are over. We're not doing survival. And we have to understand that the more darkness increases, the brighter the light becomes. So it's a victorious eschatology that says, essentially, it's a big party until the end. This is a huge party. Um, to the end, and it doesn't stop until Jesus is done with the party, right? Until he returns, right? But if your theology is that all we do is doom and gloom, then all you will ever do is you will see into every judgment that's coming, and you will see every single thing through the eyes of judgment. Am I saying that Jesus doesn't judge? He does judge, but here's the thing. He's a good father, and Jesus is reconciling all things to him. If the greatest reconciler is reconciling all things to him, I would rather not pray into a judgment as God's mechanism or weapon to turn a generation than to pray into his goodness and outpouring through revival. There's a, there's a big difference there. I would rather pray into his goodness that would lead people to repentance being poured out in revival than I would pray into greater judgment. If you want judgment, you can have it. My point is this, I don't see the heart of the Father being one who is looking at the generation. I always see, look at the revival. Let's just take an example. Here's what Todd Smith said when we were in Dawsonville. Jamie said the same thing. We see it, we see it. When you see the person that's in the pool and the Holy Spirit and fire descends on them, and you watch them melt in the presence of Jesus, and you watch things shift and move and shift and move. And what emerges is a soul that's been transformed by the goodness of Jesus.
What part of judgment do you want? I'll do goodness, and I'll do goodness of God, and I'll do the kindness of God all day over judgment. We can't, we got to stop praying into judgments. I don't even know why I'm talking about this, but we need to stop praying into judgment. Judgment is fear, and fear never turns a heart, but love does. If all we want to do is evoke fear, we can do that. But fear will never lead anyone to Jesus because fear has to do with punishment. And Jesus is not coming to punish. He is coming to redeem to the uttermost. Everything that can be redeemed will be. I don't care where you think, because this is why we need this shift in our thinking. If you're judgment-based, you're going to be praying into and looking at everything, and you will be looking at the dark side of humanity till the end, and you will be looking at everything that's going down, and you will be blind to the unseen real. You'll be blind to the host of the Lord's armies that is out there, just like in the previous chapter with Elijah, when he opened the man's eyes and he said, I want you to see what I see, because all he saw was being surrounded. And he said, open his eyes, Jesus. And what did he see? Woof! The whole universe filled with an army of heaven. If we want to be connected to the unseen real, and be connected to what the Father is doing on the face of the earth. We have to step out of judgment theology that says, these are all judgments coming to get us. The only one that comes to get us, to kill, steal, and destroy, is the devil. There are natural consequences that we reap all by ourselves without the devil. Jesus is not coming to lay a hammer to my head. He's coming to pour love into my heart. And in the context of loving me and his great mercy and his audacious, savage, violent, chase me down love, he's turning us to him. The end picture is all about reconciliation. And Jesus is lowering and leveling the playing field. He is taking the have-nots, the should-nots, the could-nots, the shame-nots, shame-ones, shame whatever you want to call them. The lepers in this picture is a picture to me of those that are the outcasts and unaccepted. It's a metaphor for me. I mean, I know it's literal too. My point is, he's going to take the ones you least expect and elevate them to the top. And then nobody is going to know what their name is. Because this person over here is going to rise up. This, this is what I see. There is a cross-pollinization going on right now in the body of Christ where streams are coming together from every place. The truth is they're all connected. Everybody has a part. No one, no one group has, we, we can't say we're it. We carry the peace that we carry, and we are integrally woven together, and Jesus is weaving a tapestry that is larger than anything we can imagine because he's going after the whole kitten caboodle, and in no one group is going to be able to say, this was our doing. Nobody 
It won't be this group, that group, that group. And those that are in the positions that are holding the hierarchy in place, I am saying this not because Jesus is this being mean, but because he's ravenous, they're coming down. Why? Because revival in the ravenous love of Jesus takes everything in its way out. Every obstacle to love is being removed right now. Jesus is ravenous. As Todd White, uh, Todd, Todd Smith, sorry, boop, a little bit. As Todd Smith says, he is coming for his bride with a vengeance. And when you have vengeance in your heart, you will remove every haughty thing that lifts its head against the tidal wave and the tsunami of love that he is releasing right now. We are standing at the precipice of the biggest tsunami wave of love that has ever hit the earth, ever. I'm talking about ever, no previous revival. We'll, 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 we'll rival this one at all. The good news is he's already been preparing us. If you want to make sense of the last 25 years, there's your sense right there. He's been making you a lover. He's been making you somebody that can love. He's been making you somebody that believes he's good. Because for so many years, in all of the judgments and all of this stuff, and all of the theology in many church camps, that don't believe in healing, that don't believe in revival, the basic premise to all of that is that God can't be that good. He can't be that good. He can't be so good that we're not supposed to earn it. I'm telling you, the Pharisees are losing the gate, and the gates of heaven are swinging wide open right now. They are wide open. The bride is come, groom is coming after the bride, and he's kicking the gates that the Pharisees have closed wide open. And the ones that are coming are the lepers, the outcasts, the ones that are foolishness to the world. They are running with abandonment to Jesus. And they are the ones he's raising up. And that generation and that group, they don't care about a name. They don't care about having the biggest TV ministry. They don't care about building the mega church. All they want is to glorify Jesus and to seek his face, and that's what they're after, and that's who he's raising up. So the ones with the most love win. The ones with the most love win. Let go of judgment. We're not going to hell in a handbasket. We're going to heaven in a freaking tidal wave. Big difference. Big Jesus is ravenous, and he's sending us the biggest lifeboat that has ever existed, and it's riding on the precipice of a tsunami that is about to hit the earth. And right now, people are being repositioned. Some are coming down, some are going up, but the least of these are going up. And the ones that we've assumed are the most they may not get taken down completely, but they sure get moved out of the way. This is this this is like um, embrace love, embrace what God's bringing, or get out of the way. 
And when you have a ravenous, ravenous, ravenous bridegroom that says, I am sick of shepherds who care about building their kingdom on the planet and don't give a rip about my people, I wouldn't want to be that one. I don't have to judge that. That's all, I'm not my job, right? Not my job at all. And I don't even want to be invested in seeing them come down. I don't care. That's not mine. Not mine to touch at all. I'm only invested in this one thing. Come Holy Spirit. Come Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. Come Holy Spirit and do what you do and take me. As Mordecai said to Esther, for such a time as this, you're in the spot you're in, young lady. So he didn't say it condescending, but you're in this spot for a reason. If you don't take your seat, if you don't take the spot, someone else is going to get the seat because a ravenous, ravenous bridegroom is seating those who will be seated. And if you won't be seated in the seat that he has for you, then you will be moved. You will miss it. You will be bypassed. It'll go by you. This is the grand invitation of a millennium right now. The grandest invitation is being extended to whosoever will. To whosoever will love in my name and will rise up and take the seat and roll with what I'm pouring out. It's yours. It's all yours. It's yours to have right now. Whosoever will. I'm in that camp. Whosoever will take me. I repented last night. And I'll get a gold star for this. I repented for trying to leave this place for 12 years. I'm trying to leave here as long as I've been here. I repented for not letting Brunswick come fully into my heart. Because my own shame was messing with me in a lot of places that had to do with ministry. I carved a path. Nothing that I carved is wasted. Jesus, that's the fun about Jesus. It's not like, oh, you just wasted three years of your life. Bink. No. I'm going to use that too. Always, always redeeming and reconciling. Nothing is ever wasted. No, nothing I've invested in has been wasted. That's what makes heaven's economy and heaven's mercy so beautiful. Is that he doesn't condemn us for where we're at. He adds to where we're at and adds to everything that we've already done. And he says, I'm going to take it all and use it. I'm going to take it all. You didn't make a mistake. There's no, there's no really major mistakes except blasphemy, which I don't think we're going to do anytime soon, right? We're not going to call what God's doing evil and evil good. We're not doing that today, right? I'm not ever going to do that, right? So the, in that sense, can you really screw it up? Not really. The only thing we can ever do is come back to the place of our seat and to the place of love. If I know love and I know my seat, I'm good. And Jesus says, I'll take care of the rest. I'll make sure that nothing you've invested, in fact, I'm going to pay back everything that you've invested with interest, heaven's interest. Love that math. Jesus is always doing exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could think or imagine. 
and he's always taking everything we offer, even the things that we offered in the seasons of our self-protection, even the things that we offered in our places of trying to preserve ourselves. Do you think that those days weren't in the book? Was he really shocked? No. He takes it all and he rolls it into one big, big tsunami wave of love, of redemption, and pulls it all together and says, everything to this day, to this point, is something that has not fallen to the ground, but I will use it. And I will use it to bring you into the places of favor and the places of exploit that were only created for you. And he's willing to do this. The reason we can, we're going to handle this revival, number one, we know more about how to pastor it, not because we're so great. It's because we screwed up a lot and we learn, right? There's a little song that says, the devil learns from your mistakes even if you don't. <laughs> Oops. So we've learned how to shepherd it better. But the greater thing is, he has turned me on to his goodness and he's turned a generation on to his goodness that in every wilderness place, you learned how to love and you learned how to trust, which means we can be trusted with habitation. Doesn't mean we won't make mistakes with it, but I think when we do, we'll correct quickly, not out of fear of punishment, but out of a desire to open the gate further to love and to get everything that he has for us. Bless you guys. Come Holy Spirit, Jesus, we just love you. And we say, let it come. I am the gate. I am the door. We all are. I'm the gate of love on this planet. And we are gates and doors and portals. So we say, here we are. Use me and flow through this gate. And this gate is yours. It's yours. And I will trust more in my union with you than I will in the devil's ability to deceive me. And I will run with abandonment recklessly. And I will take risk. He's prepared us to count the cost. So whatever it is, we'll pay it. Whatever it is, I would rather live and pay the cost and have more of you than to pay so little and have little. That which I love, that which I invest myself in, that which, if I, whatever I bring to you must cost me something. So I'm not gonna complain about the late nights not going to complain about baptizing 400 people. I didn't do all that, but I'm saying in general, I will be doing all that and more, you know, thousands really think about it. Um, so were you, so were you. Wreck my life and give it to me all. I'd rather have reckless abandonment to that than have a safe life where all we do is church. Bless you guys. Love you guys and um, enjoying this immensely. Love to get your feedback. Going to be interviewing some people soon. Getting perspectives of revival around the world. Yes, Jamie, you're going to be one of the first ones 
So because since you're a wrecker, you need to be um, interviewed. So maybe you can wreck a few people too, like uh, uh, even more so. Love you. It's going to be a really good trip. Blessings.